How might teachers use their powers of professional judgment as tools for change? Today, I'm joined by Dr. Behan Farhadi speaking about the challenges with online learning. I'm your host, Celeste Kirsch, and we are teaching tomorrow. Well before the pandemic, Dr. Farhadi was studying the Ontario government's mandated online learning for secondary students and the systemic inequities that this mode of learning deepens. Well, now that everyone is much more personally acquainted with virtual learning, Behan's experience is very, very appreciated and needed at this time. In this conversation, we get into the obvious and the not so obvious challenges that learning in this way brings up, how teachers can use their powers to disrupt and resist practices and policies that harm their students, and also how she is coping as a parent of two school-aged children. It is clear that as an educational community, we are gonna be dealing with the repercussions of this pandemic well into the future. And Behan's research and perspective give us all important considerations for how we might process and rebuild when we can step into that next chapter of school. I think you'll find this conversation affirming, eye-opening, moving, and I hope a call to action for the sake of our students. Please welcome Dr. Behan Farhadi to the podcast. I just want to start by saying uh, thank you so much for joining. I am so excited to get to talk to you. Um, we're just going to start with a quick warm up. You tell everybody who you are, where you live, and what you do. I am Behan Farhadi. I live in Scarborough, in Toronto, and I have many hats. So I am. Um, my first identity is a secondary teacher. My second identity is a um, postdoctoral visitor. I'm a researcher at York right now, and I'm also a mother to two humans. So, I love that you started with your identity as a teacher. I feel like that so speaks to all the teachers in the room who are like, yep, teaching comes first before a lot of other things in our lives. I take it for granted. Uh, It's been something I've had to suppress while doing my doctoral degree. And I keep um, recognizing so much of my strength is from that classroom experience, the continued classroom experience. And I'm, I'm realizing it now being in a faculty of education prior mm. to that I was a geor- like I was in a faculty like a geography department so it was just it's interesting to be in a faculty where my experience as a teacher is valued and has purpose very much so I think that just being able to understand what's going on in the classroom changes everything changes the game I want to get into actually what you studied for your PhD because you studied your PhD in e-learning and that's kind of a big deal right now as we're all kind of finding out. Um, But what's interesting is that you started this PhD in e-learning well before the pandemic. So this is something that you were curious about and researching and studying. And, you know, in many ways, talking about the inequities of this system well before we started seeing them play out in front of us. Uh, You also have two children, and I wanted to pull you in to talk about both of those things as a researcher, but also as a parent. So what are your thoughts right now on what is happening in Ontario education in this present moment? I feel like we are on a train 
that we had no choice but to get into and it's going in a direction that I worry about because you know on one hand I think it's fantastic that remote instruction online is being run by unionized teachers for the most part I that's a that's a huge deal I, I research right now I'm, I'm looking at policy and what I'm noticing and speaking with so many teachers is teachers make bad policy work you know they they are they are the ones that in that bridge that gap and what has traditionally been the case is that online learning has been used as a measure to cut costs mm. by government and in the worst of those instances we'll have something like the independent learning center where you have lots of students taking courses online but it's the, there's the teacher isn't there's no teacher it's just a marker mm -hmm. and you've got your content so you go through these sort of standardized modules you get your modules marked and then you get your credit that's very different from what's happening right now where there is teachers are really managing and creating that space so in one way i'm i'm hopeful that it's it is teachers and education workers and all the folks that do that support you know that that are getting students through this time. Um, but I'm, I'm worried that that success is going to be capitalized on by the provincial government in order to um, take away really important resources to, to make online learning work because it's going to be, uh, it's going to be requ uh, required for some time, but it's also going to be demanded by, by many parents who uh, for, like, who've had success in that space. Yeah, it's kind of shocking even when I heard you say the word success and like, are there families that are having success with this? And I know that there are, I'm being a little bit flippant, but it just feels like such a hard system and it feels like such a difficult way for young people to learn. If you had like the ability to have the education minister right beside you and you're like, here are the main three things that I want you to consider moving forward, what would you say? moving forward in the pandemic? After pandemic. After so pandemic. we are all vaccinated. Everything yeah. is great. Um, you know, post-pandemic world, but there's still a lot of question marks, but let's say people can go back into in-person. What would you do differently? I, I would ask that online learning was left to local boards to manage for their populations. I would ask that in-person funding be increased for students in rural remote communities where online learning has really been used to fill that gap but hasn't succeeded and you're right it isn't successful for what i i would suspect it's not successful for the majority of students and maybe success isn't the word it's preferred it's not preferred because it's Online learning is very, very limited in what it can do. And what schools offer are communities and connection and relationships that can't be replicated. I would like to focus on, on the kind of in-person experience, but teachers have been doing online learning for some time. Like in, in many ways, I think teachers were incorporating aspects of digital literacy and, and education technology, but we've never looked for it. We never 
paid attention to it. So there was this kind of narrative that nobody, nobody knew what they were doing. Um, no, nobody knows how to like move an entire face-to-face -face class online, but teachers know, I think generally how to use technology. And I, I don't, uh, and that students know how to access a Google classroom. Um, but it's, it's, uh, I worry about the standardized standardization and the um, transactional nature of online learning. So I, I would caution against any, uh, any standardization that would put teachers and education workers as simply replaceable by yeah. like algorithms or content or modules. And let's say you had a time machine and a magic wand. So let's say you could go back to March of 2020 and you could say, okay, these are the things that I think we need to do differently. If we're gonna be in this mode for a year plus, what suggestions would you have made back then? Pass fail for uh, students that aren't graduating. I understand that it's not possible to control what happens in grade 12 when you're applying for post-secondary with, uh, with law, you know, formative qualitative feedback for the next teacher. Focus on the major expectations, if at all. But I understand that there are students who cope with stress differently. Some need to have routine. Some want to continue with learning as is, as they come to expect it in the classroom. And then there are students that need to check out and need to sort of manage their own family life um, and the limitations that exist to even access online learning. So. Uh, for me, it was just, I was really surprised that we entered in September, there was, there weren't supports in place for targeted supports for remediation, which we need anyway. Mm -hmm. But we, th that wasn't a focus. There, there was almost a business as usual approach. Uh, we need to sort of look two to three years ahead and, and take a look to see like, do we really need to have 110 hours in a secondary context? Or um, do we need to have as much time in class as we do? Are there some things we can shift around? More flexibility um, in the system. But, uh, you know, I, I sort of feel, uh, you know, at this point, it's, you know, a little hopeless, I guess, is <laughs> my moment. But um, yeah, I think on a concrete way, just, you know, reducing the expectations for content for academics. And I want to say focus on relationships, but you know, like, that's not always possible online, um, but I, I, I trust education workers to know what's best for their students. Like they, teachers generally know what their, what their students need. And I definitely know that they hadn't been asked or consulted about any of this. I mean, I think they say the same things I am in many cases. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that idea of just rethinking the purpose of feedback in this paradigm, I hope translates into whatever we do post pandemic, because just even the nature of grading is so complicated. But I think that the, I mean, so much of what you write about and so much of what you talk about is how this is in a way highlighted the inequities that have already been there in the system. But every year that I've ever taught, there's always been like one or two students that they have some serious mental health things that come up for them or they're not able to learn because of other big complications in their life. And I think now we're actually starting to look at like, well, maybe we don't grade this piece. Maybe we just let go of the actual feedback or rethink about how we are reporting right now. I don't, I, I've never really understood the purpose of like a grade attached to an elementary mm -hmm. report. Card. 
I do feel so many like elementary teachers, I mean, at least seeing it from my the end of my children, they just there's so much like qualitative feedback. Like I know where my child is at from reading mm-hmm. what is what all you know, the teacher spends so much time writing. And we don't have a conversation about grades. We have the conversation of like, let's read through what what feedback you're getting. But the grade shapes their identity, right? Like they know um, what it is that they're aiming for without really understanding its meaning. And there is nothing I can do on my end to stop that because it's such an institutional uh, force that shapes students from kindergarten like to grade 12, yeah. Yeah. Um, Speaking of that, in so much of your writing that I've been reading the last couple of weeks, you write about systems of oppression and how they're getting reinforced with this lockdown. You write about how students who don't have internet access or equitable access to devices or students who don't have a safe and well-resourced space for learning and how higher COVID case counts in some of the communities are experiencing even more inequalities that could have staggering repercussions. But then teachers are part of the system. So they see these real problems. And I think that many teachers in a way feel powerless in addressing these big systems at play. Do you have any ideas for what teachers can do to take action or to help disrupt some of these inequities that are unfolding? It's a big one. Yeah, I mean, but I've I've been thinking a lot about about this in my my work right now, and um, thinking about the difference in response by teachers I've interviewed who feel that their professional judgment is something they feel grounded in. There is there is something to be said about having experience teaching for some time and understanding um, how to meet the needs of your students. And it's until you have that confidence, it's hard to refuse policies and directives. But I've spoken to so many teachers whose response has been, I didn't pay attention to that. I ignored that. I know what's best for my students. Um, No, they don't need this many hours in front of a screen. Uh, I know that I can sort of structure my lessons in a way that um, sets them up for success. And what can we do? We can we can refuse uh, refuse harmful policy. Uh, we can refuse the some of the conditioning I think that we experience as as, t- as educators and that conditioning being grades are what are tied to success. If a student uh, doesn't pass this test, then this is the story I'm going to tell about that student. Uh, the issue is not the test, the issue becomes the student. The issue becomes their history. Uh, the issue becomes the story that we say about what's happening in their lives. It's very rare that I, I encounter teachers whose response to patterns that they observe is to question the system producing those patterns. Uh, and and the and the reason and the kind of function of those things. But a lot of times we're. I, I feel the hardest thing for me to return to teaching after grad school was, I had been in a position to to really criticize and be critical of the systems and structures I was embedded in, to kind of move outside of those. And then I came in, and folks are overwhelmed. 
it takes work to unlearn. It takes um, time and space to unlearn. And that I feel like that that space is not something that we encounter often enough. So in sh like my one word would be to refuse it, but you have to know what to refuse. And, and um, often teachers are advocates for their students and they need to see themselves as serving students and not be systems. Um, and so when there are instances where students are encountering uh, a lack of access because we have an ableist system, we have a system where a student who might not feel well enough to come to school for all a variety of reasons doesn't have the resources to, to succeed at home. So these are, uh, or they come to class and the uh, ways that curriculum is structured uh, doesn't meet or engage them in ways that matter. Oftentimes I wonder if we actually paid attention to why we teach, we would realize we didn't need to do as much as we do in terms of trying to, to jam up the year with so much. Um, and I think that that was a real good learning in, in spring. I think spring was the first time that ever, in, in Ontario where teachers could kind of back off the grade thing, mm -hmm. you know, and some didn't know what to do because I think some felt like that's my identity. I've, I've only graded. I only understand my job in relationship to these reports that I have to produce where many other teachers were like, wow, finally, I can, I can focus on what matters as it relates to the value system that they have. So yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping that the folks listening are progressive educators who want to change the system. So yeah, I think that is exactly who's listening and people who are curious and wanting to do more. And I think the the idea of teachers that as advocates for their children, I think that is so important and so powerful. And I'm like, literally the second you said that, I was thinking of you know, five teachers, like, oh, that's why they're so good at their job because they're, every staff meeting, they're like, what about this? What about that? Who, has anyone ever thought about this? And they're the ones who are refusing or pushing back or even just resisting, like just pushing back a little bit to say, well, what's best for the students right now? And what's best for the community? That's yeah. huge. And accessing resources. Students have a right to a, you know, a, a good education. Mm -hmm. they, and it's unacceptable that they, there, there are students that don't receive a dignified education, uh, one that is affirming and, um, and, meets, and meets their needs, even just at the most basic level. And too often we are ambivalent or we feel resigned and it's just the system, but teachers have a lot of power to disrupt, mm -hmm. like lots and lots of power. If they understand the policies structuring their school board, they understand the responsibility of administrators. Uh, there's a lot of work that can be done to access resources for, for students, even in the absence of it. I haven't done the research on this and I'm, I'm curious what happens in communities where there isn't reliable high-speed internet? Like how does that actually work in a pandemic? Paper, copies, um, emails, asynchronous, like mm -hmm. not live. There are, you know, the directive has, has generally been synchronous with the exception of 
And those students are getting an entirely different experience. So what we will see for sure, both within and across geographies is just disparity, mm -hmm. disparity across the board in all kinds of ways, in, in ways we can't anticipate, in ways that we can't measure uh, right now, uh, and in ways that teachers will not have the tools to address unless there are resources resources in the system. And right now we're moving away from resourcing uh, education. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's asking for too much to be able to meet the basics. It's funny, like all the talk in the summer about defunding the police that I read something somewhere about how, like, well, we've been defunding education for years. And like, when you frame it like that, when you frame the way that money has been moved out of education for so many years now, it it is really frightening with where we are right now as a Whole collective. Yeah, it, it is the hardest. I find the barrier really hard in a society that's super individualistic. It's really, there's a sense that, you know, you fail because you're not, uh, you're not smart enough. You're, you don't work hard enough. Exactly. You're imprisoned because you, you broke the rules. Uh, the rules become you know, the system and the rules become objective truths. And then, you know, and poverty, you're, you're in poverty because you are lazy and not willing to work hard enough. And, you know, and, and then when, when it's often leveraged by folks in, with privilege, and even when you, like I grew up in, I, I spent a lot of my life in poverty. And it's, interesting to see how the story we tell about disadvantage changes as we acquire privilege, right? Like there's a way of kind of rationalizing that like, oh, well, I worked really hard for it, of course. Yeah, Which exceptionalism. Not, exactly, exactly. So, uh, you know, there's the, the connection between jails and schools has, has been long researched it's typically referred to as the school to prison pipeline, but more interesting in recent analysis talks about schools to prisons, not as a pipeline, but as a relationship that encompasses all aspects of society. Uh, and, and we, you know, there's research on social determinants of health and the impact of, of wealth uh, and impact of education. And we know that in too many instances, the success that people experience is not because they worked the hardest, but because they have the best connections. That that systems thinking, and and I know there's always a tension between, there's always a tension between the system and the individual, right? Like mm. I don't think people need to. No one's sitting there going, "Well, you all are oppressed." Like poor, you know, you just the system's going to get you. I don't think it's that at all. I think folks need to have high expectations, but understand that those expectations are structured and like the language for those expectations are structured in the system. So what is it that we're asking of, mm -hmm. of each other and of in society and of our students by extension, because schools are kind of the, they're the test run for students, right? Like that's when they get access to a variety of perspectives and people and they start learning lessons about what their what their place is in society and that that often shapes how they transition to adulthood mm. yeah and that's a perfect segue because you're studying the systems you're looking at things from you know more of a well, I mean a systems perspective for your PhD 
And then you also have two children. You're also managing this as a parent and you're also a teacher. So like I, you actually have a lot of different hats that you're looking at this from. I love this quote from your dissertation. The promise made by e-learning is impossible to fulfill because it's a technology that reinforces merit-based schooling systems that tend to reproduce social and cultural hierarchy. I hope that's okay that I'm quoting you back to you. It's a little weird. But I'm curious, like, you know all this, you've studied this, you have publicly critiqued this as a system, and then you have an SK and a young person in grade three, and you're delivering this program at home. So are you pulling your hair out? Are you banging your head against the wall? Are you, like, secretly whispering to them, like, this doesn't really matter? Like, how are you managing this? I, uh, one of the other, one of the side gigs I have had right has also been my both my work being in and studying psychoanalysis mm -hmm. so i that i it's not something that is in this work because it was a focus of mine when i was doing my master's degree out in english and it's something i continued on like kind of through side projects but i i reference that because it has been really central to my thinking. And it's interesting because like psychoanalysis is such an individual, right? Like this idea of the kind of psyche and the formation of the individual, but so much of it is actually about systems too, right? Mm -hmm. It's about the architecture of our childhood and our first encounters with love and our first encounters with relationships and our parents, right? Our caregivers, um, it, that shapes so much of how we, move through the world and how we make sense of the world, but we're not determined by it either. It's just that we navigate these, these tensions. So I, th I think a lot with it because as a parent, there's this uh, concept um, called good enough parenting. Winnicott, right? yes. I want that tattooed somewhere on me, yes. So, so that's it. That's what I'm like, I know I'm not going to get it right. I uh, really hope that people give me space to be fallible and to say things in contradiction um, and to love me enough to tell me when that happens. But I, and I tell my, my, I, I told my, um, my eight-year-old today, he said, you're the best mummy in the world. <laughs> he said, like everyone must say that to their mummy. And I'm like thinking to myself, well, I hope Say that when you're 14 I hope you say that when you're 16 and you know and in, into adulthood because I think children at that age have very like a lot of idealism about their about their caregivers and that shifts as you age so I I just cross my fingers hope that my instincts are right um, and I'm also you know encountering my own coding as a parent, like I know how to parent from being parented and I had very poor parenting. Like it was very, very poor in many respects. So I, um, you know, I try to really pay attention to my instincts and do lots of reflexivity. And, and that is why I'm in therapy because it's given me the tools to, to kind of on a regular basis, visit myself. Even if there's nothing, nothing to say, it just it forces me to confront whatever happened that week, and and um, keeps at the very, very least keeps me mindful of my patterns. And how are your kids doing with distance learning right now? Yeah, 
they're depends. They're okay. They're happy. Um, my eight-year-old has had increasing anxiety, which has more recently manifested into these into his sleep, which of course gets concerning when it gets to that point. But what I have noticed is that it's um, it's not just it's not the effect of online learning so much as it seems to be the effect of me working late at night. Mm. So mm -hmm. I've noticed that in the last night I spent time with him. It's been my partner who's put him to bed for the last at least two weeks. And I just had it, I just like, you know, five o'clock comes and I'm downstairs working. So for him to have had that time with me, it seemed to have alleviated some anxiety. Um, but yeah, but that's what online learning does too, right? That's yeah. the impact of it is that I have to be with my youngest while he's upstairs, they're not engaging with me so much as they're engaging with that screen. And then when they're, when they're done and they, they need that time with me in the evening, when they're in that zone, they don't have me there. So. Yeah. Thank yeah. you for naming that because I think that is like a universal experience for people who are trying to help their children through this experience while also having to manage their own professions. Um, and a lot of people are working into the evenings. Like that's how I mean, I, I actually read that you were ready, but how that's how you did your PhD. Like you were, you know, raising your children and then doing night work. But this, so this has been happening for people since pre-pandemic, but it is a really exhausting way to be with your children. And, you know, even good enough seems sometimes like a really high bar. Yeah. And I do worry about normalizing um, burnout. Mm -hmm. I struggle with, with, I struggle with, feeling successful in my profession and feeling successful with my children, but knowing that both things are not sustainable for me. Mm. Like it was only, I, I, I do know I am, have a very, very poor adjustment to work. Like I have a very, my perspective on work should not be normalized. I, sit there and I'm like, all right, I've got a paper that I've got to write. And it's got it's I have to write it because the alternative is for me to lose my um, lose the advantage that I gain from my work, that folks who don't have children, mostly men are not going to encounter and then I get enraged. And then that rage forces me to write like that's how I cope with mm -hmm. my stress. And that's not some like, that's not how people often cope with their stress, but that's how I cope with my yeah. stress is like, I'm angry and I'm frustrated. So I, I do my work and work through it that way. Maybe, you know, it, it's okay to crawl under your bed too, right? It's, <laughs> it's rage productivity. It's like a new thing. It's not yeah. new. It's probably very old. Neoliberalism 2.0. <laughs> Okay, we're going to close off with a ticket out the door, just like when we're teachers and we want that last little piece of something from our students. Uh, there's just a bunch of random rapid fire questions. Are you ready to play? Okay. Absolutely. What is your favorite book to read to your children? A's for, acti A's for, A's yeah. for activist. Yeah, activist. Yes, that one. That's a really good one. What is the best gift you ever received as a teacher? A letter. Hmm. Those are always the best. Yeah. What is your favorite school safe snack? Oh, that is uh, fruits. I mean, that's <laughs> like, that's very specific. I'm thinking of prepackaged with no peanuts on the front, but yeah. no, 
Yeah, fruit is good. Uh, what's the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning? Oh, terrible check my <laughs> Okay, what's the last thing you do before you go to bed? Oh, that's even worse. <laughs> Listen to a podcast on the good days. Okay, that's good. I like that. Uh, what is the most recent TV show you binged and loved? Suits, mm. which is problematic and brought out all the contradictions in me. You know, I never got into that. I, it's funny. Everyone's like suits is the best. And I, I never could get into it yet. It's not, I mean, it was just totally my relationship to patriarchy, my relationship to, yeah, all of it. Watch there. it with a critical lens. I, it's great. Uh, pie or cake? Uh, cake. Beach or mountains? Beach. Spring or fall? Spring. What would be your last meal on earth? Cheese and wine. Can I take both? Yes, please. Okay. Who is your favorite edu celebrity? Joy Henderson. Mm. I mean, she's, she's a child and youth worker. Um, but I, you know, that's her, that's her wheelhouse. So she's an educator that I admire a lot. That's great. What do you think is the future of learning? Oh, no. Okay. Optimistic or pessimistic? Mm, go both. Give us both flavors. Salty and the sweet pessimistic we are replaced by artificial intelligence and uh, are relegated to a soul-sucking position of contact with students or we have a mass awakening and we recognize the importance and function of education workers um, and and that people appreciate us and they want to fund what we do because they know that's integral to the functioning and and growth of society and we are going to put our money in the right places i hope for the latter of those two that's that's what i'm hoping for that makes that makes two of us yeah Thank you so much for sharing your time. I really, really appreciate what you're doing for education and how you're taking a stand for all of us here. Thank you. I appreciate the conversation. It was a good one. I am so grateful that Dr. Farhadi was able to join us in this conversation. I loved listening back to our talk and hearing at different moments my children and her children in the background, which I think is a perfect metaphor for what working, learning, researching, and existing in 2021 is all about. If you are now obsessed with Dr. Farhadi like I am, you can follow her on Twitter at B-B-F-A-R-H-A-D-I. She is an active voice in this space for change and more progressive policies that support learners. I found out about Dr. Farhadi because a friend reached out to me and introduced us on Twitter. So if you have a great suggestion for who I should have on the show, I would love to hear your ideas. Reach out to me on Twitter at teach underscore tomorrow or on Instagram at teaching underscore tomorrow. Thank you to those of you who are submitting your ratings and reviews for the show. Allison McRae, I see you. I love you. I appreciate you. Thank you. The fact that people are following through and doing this means so much. You could be the next one to get a little shout out like Allison. Just fill out a rating and review on Apple Podcasts to share what you like about the show and any feedback you might have. That's all the time we have for today, folks. Keep advocating for your students and remember we are teaching tomorrow.